I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This session is about the right to repair, and we really took right to repair to another level, talking about intellectual property and ownership of that intellectual property and, and the software components. Um, so if you're interested in this topic, and you really should be because it impacts every single business and every single consumer, then hang through this conversation. We really get to some interesting places. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks. So let me, I'll, I'll stage right to repair a little bit. I'm assuming everybody's aware of, of the, the phrase, but let me, let me give a little bit of, of background because there's a specific question I have that I would tee us up with on it. Um, so right to repair is this idea that when you buy a product, um, you're able to, to fix it. Um, and we've been building products lately that don't have that inherent part of the contract. So like, you're not supposed to open an iPhone. You're not supposed to repair a Tesla. John Deere tractors have gotten a lot of heat about that. Um, but I would say it goes even further with, you know, all sorts of consumer goods and cloud-backed infrastructures and things like that. You, you use the service and that's about it, right? You don't, you know, streaming services, you don't, you don't own a movie. You don't have the, you know, you don't, you don't own it. You, you're getting short-term access to it. Um, so it can go really far. The government's getting involved in it in part because of market power um, for these consumers, for, for consumers. Um, and I've had just to short, short, shorten some of this, I've, we've had conversations about, you know, consumer demand for this and, you know, needing consumers not asking for right to repair necessarily, or some consumers are, but the bulk are not. Um, and one of the angles that I was interested in for this conversation is the vendor side of it. Because I think part of what, what I see with right to repair is we're maybe justified in beating up on some of these vendors or concerned about some of these practices. And we've had conversations as a group about it. Um, but I, I also don't know that the vendors have a lot of choice at the moment. Um, about how they're trying to get technologies into the field. So I, I guess part of, you know, I'm happy to take this a couple of different ways, but it would be interesting for us to put on the vendor's hats about maintaining technology and, and what it takes to keep up and sustain the technologies that they're selling um, and think about the right to repair from both sides of this, this question. Does that make sense as a preamble? It's a little bit longer than I meant it to be, but. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not sure how much of a, um, you know, a horse I have in this race, um, but uh, uh, I've always seen the right to repair as being uh, of two ends. One is there's a lot of stuff that you can get right now that you can't really repair, but the truth is, is that repairing would probably cost more in time and effort than, it, than it's worth to just go out and buy a replacement. Uh, and then there's the other end of the spectrum where you're talking about something like a MacBook or a or an iPhone or a John Deere tractor, where if you had the volume and the interest and the skill, then um, doing some level of repair on your own um, might very well be worthwhile. And I know you mentioned John Deere already, and probably I don't probably don't need to mention any of the other detail about that um, because they sort of started 
um, the the whole who actually owns the product thing, right? Um, That's right. But I, you know, I, I if I'm buying a you know a, um, a, a movie, I I don't expect to be able to repair a scene. Um, you know, if I'm buying if I'm if I'm buying a cloud product, I don't expect to be able to repair um, a server or a service in the cloud infrastructure. I expect that if, if if it's broken, I get them to fix it, or the um, the uh, uh, I, I pick a better service, one that works more effectively for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I if I buy and own a product, my first inclination, certainly as a younger person, uh, where I didn't have a problem with wrenching on things and getting my knuckles bruised, um, would have been to try and tear it apart and fix it. And if if unlike today, I was in my 20-somethings trying to afford the latest and greatest iPhone, I'd be really pissed if every time I just needed a new fucking screen, I had to go basically buy half of another iPhone to get it done um, instead of being able to do it myself. And um, and those so those kind of things, I think, are um, worthy of discussion. I'm not sure how directly they relate to, you know, uh, the broader technology uh, um, issues or opportunities that we discuss as a group. Um, but I could see where they could relate to um, businesses that have a significant volume of a set of products, um, whether it's a farm with a number of tractors or a major investment in even one tractor or a company that, you know, likes the MacBook, but, also happens to have uh, a couple of genius repair people uh, on the payroll and they want to be able to use those effectively to keep those MacBooks running effectively um, as part of their ability to maintain costs. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know where to start that part of the conversation, but I do have um, relatively strong feelings that uh, if you're going to charge a price for something that um, dictates a serious impact on the owner when they are forced to go back to the manufacturer for repairs, then there should be an option for the buyer um, to be able to fix it themselves. And I, you know, even when I, even when I first was still, or when I was last working on cars, I was get frustrated by looking at the manual and, and the manual would say, if this is happening, go to your dealership. Right. As opposed to saying, this is what you do. And so that was my kind of my early frustration that started in the late eighties. Just go to your dealership. Yeah. Interestingly, electronic cars conceivably could be more repairable. Right. Or modular. More modular, you would think. Right. In general. And and yet I think you will also find that um, there are a lot more restrictions on items in electronic cars that uh, make it easier for you to wrench on things like performance. You're not allowed to change the software. Right. And one of the things that that uh, folks with cars have been doing since at least the early 90s is uh, reprogramming 
some of the engine components so that they run richer or they have different timing or whatnot so that they can get more performance out of their car. Right. Uh, the to, to, to be fair, like you, you are allowed to to reprogram the ECU. It just voids the warranty. And so, and, so the, the question, and, yeah, I guess, the uh, right to repair, I think to me, it's, it's more than just going be, beyond. It's, it's it's going beyond voiding the warranty. It's, it's actually making it illegal to modify uh, the devices that you believe you own or or making or designing the, the device in, in a way that is hostile to repair. Like, for example, glued components. Right. And, and, and Klaus, to your point, I think it, it is a, a significant distinction um, where um, I, I have no problem with the idea of the potential to avoid a warranty, um, although it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a slippery slope that um, could fall in favor of the, um, of the builder, um, the manufacturer. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I can understand the, the, the concern over um, uh, warranty, but um, the, as you said, the, the ability even just to work on it uh, at all, whether it's under warranty or not, is, is where I run into problems. Joanne, did you want to throw something in? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, first of all, I think part of the issue of right to repair, and, and I'm on the side of we fix everything, period, full stop. So if we don't have to replace it, we'll fix it um, because we're tinkerers in the house. That being said, though, the idea of right to repair, I think, stems is, is moving, is shifting out of the OEM and into the marketplace much faster than people realize because the cost of a repair of a warranty repair or the cost of a warranty goes against brand value, goes against the actual physical cost of manufacturing something. Think about it. When you go to Home Depot and buy a Nest thermostat and that fails, it's not Home Depot that Home Depot gets the calls and the complaints, but Nest is not the one who gets the ding against their brand value, it's Home Depot, believe it or not. If you look at the statistics of consumer complaint and, and stuff like that. So now you have that going back into the supply chain, which is the OEMs in electronics that make most of the device for Nest or now you know, uh, Amazon, uh, it, which is what happened with Ring. So I think there's, two parts to the right to repair argument that are going to come to court very quickly. One part being, does a manufacturer have a right to say, no, you cannot repair this and keep it proprietary? Or is there some middle ground that allows a consumer to go within a limitation because that's actually a sustainability goal, that's a circular economy goal, and all those kinds of arguments. And those, I think, are shifting. I know... Here, there's uh, proposed legislation that had, I think, its first reading in the House of Commons before Parliament was dissolved um, on whether or not you had the right to repair 
consumer devices, whether it's a Nest thermostat, an iPhone, any other brand's phone, that they can't actually say you're violating their warranty. They have to put a limitation on that warranty to say, uh, to accommodate things like a cracked screen, which you can buy the glass for and you can take it apart and put it back together. Also, the fact that there's a huge maker's market now, which stemmed out of people repairing their own stuff, those that are concerned with um, the ecosystem, et cetera. And when you look looked at the COVID stuff, just as an example, there were 150,000 companies, small businesses and individuals listed on Facebook willing to make PPE who profited from COVID in that respect. You could say that they violated patents. You could say that they violated repairs of certain products like ventilators when they were making uh, 3D printed parts to keep them running. So that whole argument I think is also gonna be colored by what's happened more recently, as opposed to just, I'm a manufacturer, I say what goes, it comes back in my bottom and top line. So, you know, sort of Apple, you have the case, not, or John Deere, you have the case, not rest of world. I think those are influencing factors that we sort of need to think around because it's a much, it's now a much bigger question than a tire manufacturer getting sued because people died over the tires, a la Firestone. When, go ahead, Klaus. I was going to say, since you mentioned uh, getting sued, um, just to, to put, putting on the devil's advocate hat here, um, there is a component in applying repair restrictions. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that is valid generally or globally, but that I, I believe that, that there is a reason for applying restrictions to repairability uh, or at least applying legal re restrictions when it comes to protecting a company from litigation. Again, go, let's say the yes. with the ventilator part. Um, if the if the if the three D printed part fails, is the company protected? Is the is the manufacturer protected? from litigation due to that, that failure. Right. No, this is. <sighs> well, you know, to your point, I'm not sure that it wouldn't have been, I know there's a, there, there were a bunch of cases in Italy because it's, um, it started during the height of their COVID where a lot of companies in other industries that did have 3D printing capabilities started making parts. And I believe that they issued them under, this is not under patent, this is not IP protected, this is just generally available. And oh, by the way, here are also the plans for it. So if you wanna make your own, you could. And it was simply to support the effort. So to your point, I'm not sure like I know that they're using that as as the basis for case law. I'm not sure where it would actually fall though. The original manufacturer may have said this is in violation of warranty, but if they can't produce the part, then what? But so so I, I it's interesting because I'm thinking about this and 
we're, we're very software, you know, there's a, there's an element of software in a lot of these products. This is part yeah. of where I, where my defense of John Deere comes in, whether it's warranted or not, but I'm, I'm, as I think it through, let's say you, you know, maybe ventilators is a great example because the ventilators is going to have software as, as well as hardware, just like everything else. And if you fix a ventilator with a 3D printed part or, you know, you, you fix it. Um, and then, then the, the vendor sends a software patch down that isn't expecting that 3D part, that, that, that part or change to be on the system. Who's responsible for, you know, the life, the, the now life-threatening situation? But you could get the same thing with a car, tractor, sure. you know, anything, right? Nest, Nest could send a new patch to their, the firmware on their device, which they do all the time. And if you've, you know, attached it to something in a, in a modified way, you could cause, you know, fire in somebody's house. It's not that hard to conceive of. I, I, I think the issue with, with, with John Deere is that they're effectively two companies in one. They produce hardware, but they also provide a service. Like modern John Deere tractors mm -hmm. are, are very complex. They're they're essentially self-driven GPS vehicles, right? Uh, but um, for the smaller farmers that are looking to just have a tractor, they don't necessarily have the option of decoupling the hardware from the service, right. and that is potentially. One of the reasons why John Deere's DRM is falling afoul of so many people's opinion is that it makes sense for John Deere to protect the service, their their automation IP. I understand. I'm not saying that, that I'm not saying necessarily that they should because because I am I'm personally on the camp on on fiber repair. But I understand why they would want to protect their service. Um, I, I cannot, however, justify them limiting access to their hardware when it's when it doesn't have to be coupled to their service. I have an interesting thought from that. So I could see a scenario where somebody takes a cyber truck and turns it into a tractor. Right. And, and modif like, you know, I could see Tesla exposing enough APIs to give you the autonomy, the autonomy. This is what made me think of it. The autonomy or any one of the autonomous cars to become a, become a tractor. Um, we could be right in the next five years with these cars coming out, we could actually be in a place where people are just, modifying cars they have enough torque they have enough storage and electric electrical capability to you know replace tractors and then you could do a third party oh yeah i need a combine on on the back attach it to my towing rig and go we could have a wave of innovation coming in that's that decouples all those things if we just had something to, to ride it on uh sorry right. something something to literally pull the innovation forward as a platform I think, Rob, you might just, I don't know if you did it on purpose or if it was an accident, but you might have just hit on 
<clears throat> one of the areas that's um, that's likely most important to the manufacturers, as opposed to what appears to be the obvious issue, which is that they want to own the the repairs because that makes them money. They may want to own ongoing innovation uh, um, and not necessarily care about the repairs, but they don't want other people coming up with customized John Deere tractors that could be copied and turned into something else. Um, uh, they, you know, they want to, they want to own that. Yeah. You, you heard that their market, they, they, right. they want uh, vertical integration. They, they don't, they, they don't want interoperability and, and interoperability, interoperability is one of, is one of the reasons why Toyota is lobbying against right to repair because they have their world garden. Um, John Deere, I suspect the same. Um, I mean, the, the, Rob, you, your choice of Tesla is not is not particularly good either, because Tesla themselves they they they're particular anti right to repair. Uh, like their their vehicles are, ex- are essentially a subscription. Uh, um, but that's right. But yes, uh, like just going back and, and summing it up, like. Yes, modularity, interoperability are rather key parts on 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 those proponents of right to repair, um, especially in, on consumer devices. But I, I guess part of what and and I agree with you, Tesla is one of the the culprits here. They they don't want things taken apart in part because I think that they know that their vehicle is as much software as hardware. Um, and they haven't seen a market for a modular and, and, and in some ways the regulatory environment does not encourage you to have a modular um, environment from that perspective. Um, I, I have a short, a very short, I was doing electric car work uh, 15 years ago and I went, I actually talked to an executive at GM and said, I really want the, uh, it was the solstice, the Pontiac solstice as a, as a what they call a glider, so it's a car without an engine. And the guy looked at me and he said, "We will never ever sell you a car body that has any any modularity to it at all, because regulatory wise, and we could we we can't handle the liability." Hmm. Um, it, it's interesting that 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 you should mention that because GM, um, I mean, they, they're now producing an electric crate engine that. That you could potentially retrofit a an ICE engine into electric with that. So, the- well, and, and they should, right? They should be like with the the F one fifty. Like I, I believe a lot of these electric car plans are actually a sled. They have a standard sled, and then they put the car body on top of the sled, and you're like you get small, medium, or large sled, and then. You know the car is is it's it could be a modular unit, mm-hmm. but we're I, it, the way things are going with these these the with with what the product and I completely get it from the product company's perspective. They don't want somebody producing you know something on top of their platform that's not their i that they don't control. That there's also the matter of of uh, brand awareness, like. Exactly. Like, like when if if you if you produce a, a a modular platform, let's say if, if Apple were to produce a modular platform, but you start 
plugging in third-party components that maybe don't work quite as well as Apple. That hurts the Apple brand because you have a an Apple case that the, the, the part that is visible is Apple. The parts that are invisible and, and are not working as intended might be someone else's brand, but but the, the regular consumer doesn't realize that. It's interesting, Klaus, that's an interesting um, point. And while this uh, example may be a little bit off the wall, um, I spent a lot of time uh, while I was in high school uh, working uh, at McDonald's, probably 30 to 40 hours a week. Not that that specifically is so important in this discussion, but interestingly enough, I found out um, early that uh, even though we used to give food um, to the local police department, if they came by when the store was closing and we had extra food, we would give it to them through the window. But we would never send free food to people that we couldn't control the quality of when it got to them. Mm. And the reason for that is, is exactly as you're describing, is that it doesn't matter that it's free. What mattered is that the M symbol was still on the box. And when they ate it and it was sloppy and cold and soggy, um, that left an impression of the brand, at least in McDonald's eyes. Which is part of the reason that I mentioned brand value early on. I mean, I see it from two different points of view. When you're in manufacturing and you have to deal with the test prepare and warranty side of it, it's hugely expensive to bring components back. Like the best example I can give you is an old one, but think back maybe 10 years ago when batteries were exploding in laptops and it caused a worldwide phenomenon of countries literally banning you from taking a second battery or having the battery in your laptop while you were flying. It caused 10 million batteries to be recalled across all the major manufacturers. It was huge. And part of the problem was that nobody ever bashed Mitsui, which was the company that actually made the batteries for all the OEMs, but they bashed every single manufacturer of laptops. And that it, we're seeing the same thing over and over again. I mean, the examples that I see and why I don't support the right that you shouldn't be able to. There you go. Still have absolutely these batteries. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a Dell problem. It's not the OEM problem or it's not the original manufacturer. Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, it's all about outsourcing, right? So it's who's going to take the hit? How much is it going to cost you going forward? In the case of, of the batteries, it costs airlines. It costs every OEM. No. Uh, we all lost productivity. We all lost capability because, you know, there are still some countries that if you're overflying that country, you literally must remove the battery from your laptop when you get on the plane. They'll provide you an electrical outlet, but you have to take that battery out. And they, they you know, make you put it in your luggage, which to me causes a bigger hazard, but that's irrelevant. So I think we're seeing the same thing. But I would ask the, the opposite of the hardware question to what I put in the chat, which is, do you also have an argument over right to repair data? Is there an obligation from somebody who's subjected to a ransomware attack to repair all the data? 
as opposed to just inform the consumer? Why do we all have to go check our credit yeah. versus the company that is the, the distributor of the credit card? T-Mobile user here. We just got word that we were compromised. <laughs> yep. Um, so I actually did a just did a web search also. And the interesting thing about some of the John Deere is that uh, it's you hear about the Nebraska farmer who's got a small farm in the $300,000 combine. And the problem he has is it's actually not so much that he, he didn't repair the hardware. He has repaired the hardware and it's the uh, diagnostic signal on the computer board that says it's still broken, that he can't clear and he can't actually buy a tool to clear it. And it would cost a couple hundred dollars to get somebody to come out with the proprietary tool to clear the diagnostic signal on his machine. But yeah. Um, so it's just, and now I can't remember where Joanne was. So I, I can't get us back on track. Sorry. We, we were talking well, about the uh, right to repair data. Um, oh, I yes. think that, that, that's, a, that's a bigger field also of like data ownership. Um, and and we, we can bring in GDPR and, and lots of other things with, with that as well. Um, and it's not just data, it's bit ownership. Uh, the the whole thing with electronic books and movies, um, the Internet Archive right now and a bunch of libraries, especially a bunch of libraries, are fighting with the publishers now in that the ebooks that they're selling for the same price that they were selling hard copy books actually have a limit of how many times you can lend them or read them. Right. And so these yeah, they, libraries they that buy books have 10 reads and that's it. And then they have to buy another license. Even though it's officially purchased the book, they don't have the right to read them more than a certain number of times. So right, that, the bits, I mean, that, that doesn't, that doesn't strike me as, is it, it's an equivalence with a physical book where you would read a physical book you know, they last a certain number of times, checkouts, and they, that's an expected part of the wear and tear on a book. And in electronic books have, you know, having a, a life cycle for that, it sort of makes sense. Otherwise, they'd be super expensive. Well, except that they are super expensive. So if you're paying $8 for an electronic book, but you only have 10 reads, what does that do to and also, what does that do for public libraries? Public libraries buy books to give access to the public. The whole concept of the library is to make these copyrighted materials free for people who can't afford them to be able to educate themselves. And it's on a lending basis. And suddenly the, the people who have the authority to lend are no longer the libraries who have bought the material, but the publisher who decides how many times you get to read it before it's no longer legible anymore. Sure. But at the same time, they used to have to buy titles. 
in this case. And so they might have they might have bought uh, you know a book that only got checked out twice in its you know history. And they're still doing that, and they're still paying the same amount. So the book gets mm-hmm. checked out zero or one times, and it's still good, but nobody's reading it versus uh, your favorite bestseller that suddenly they have to keep rebuying over and over and over again to satisfy their customer demands. Yeah, I, I think I think that there's I mean, I I particularly like this um, this line of discussion around the books because I've always argued um, that digital books were a problem for two reasons. One is that logically, like an ATM, the service should be free because the point of the ATM is to reduce the cost of the bank in servicing you in the branch. And yet they still, in many cases, make you pay at the ATM. Now, some banks obviously don't make you pay if you use their ATM, so that's fine, but that's not always the case. With a book, a digital book, from an equivalency standpoint, costs, I've got to believe, just based on my basic understanding of putting together systems and holding data and then distributing it, probably costs one quarter of the physical or less in order to not only build the material, but then distribute it and maintain it one quarter. And yet you pay roughly the same. You, you look for a new book from Rob Hirschfeld on, on um, Amazon, and it's going to be $24.99, just like the hardcover would have been if you'd bought it in a store. And yet you put it on your Kindle or your book reader or whatever it is you're using, and you can't even share it with another person. If I bought a book before, there was zero restrictions on me giving it to as many people, handing it down, putting it in my library, letting my kids and their kids and their friends read it in my library for in perpetuity, right? And that, so that, that's also important though, the, the, the durability aspect of that. Right. Like a, a book, you can still read a book that was printed in the 19th century. Yep. Go and pick it up and, and read it. With, with, uh, with ebooks, with, with DRM, you are at the whim of the DRM server. Yep. Uh, and we've seen issues with that before, like with music services that go away and, and, and people who've bought music uh, with the expectation that it's the equivalent durability as a, as a CD or, 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 or a cassette deck no longer have access to, to that music that they legally purchased. Right. Well, like uh, Apple recently, this just happened to my wife and I. I um, had a, a no music account because I was on the shared account that my wife had signed up for. So we both had access on a monthly basis to all the music we wanted theoretically to download mm-hmm. and, and listen to. Download, I'll explain in a second what that actually means in Apple parlance in this particular case. Um, uh, we did uh, some, some sort of requirement came up for updating uh, as, a, as a result of iOS 14 or something I can't remember. And so I updated. And, and they decided to give me the account. And, um, and I don't know why, but they put the account under my name and everything my wife had on her phone disappeared. When she called Apple about it, um, literally every song, even songs she had put on there disappeared. And when she called Apple, he goes, oh, well, no, you pay $14.99 a month and you can download music, but any of the music you download disappears if you stop paying. And I can understand that there is some logic to that because you could, in theory, download the entire Apple library 
after paying $14.99. But um, it's it's just another example of where you're you're paying to borrow what is historically been um, uh, the ability to literally archive for generations. I mean, look at the people even now. I mean, I've got a I've got a nephew who's almost 20 years younger than I am, who loves to collect and build his library of um, LPs. How, how do you do that to, to the point just made about music? How do you do that with music now uh, from a digital format? You I mean, I, we're just living in a world where you don't own that. This is yeah. this to me is, is right. The, the, the core of what we're talking about in some ways feels very different, but I think comes back to the same core that we've been talking about a right to repair. What you think you own is changing in, in the digital world, right? You don't, you don't own, you, you know, we think we own the book. No, we own the physical copy that contains the IP. And the only reason why we're used to that model is because they had no way to make the book self-destruct. Right. <laughs> Right. I, mean, I think there's another there's another issue there, Rob, and that okay. is, yes, you do own the physical manifestation, the instance of the book, but you do not own rights to the content. You cannot willy nilly take the uh, take the content without uh, reference, without reference to copyright. You are not allowed to take the content and republish it yourself as right. a as a book and resell it um, so what comes with ownership and what you are licensed to kind of uh, the constraints that are put on you by a license in this particular case that that's set by copyright um, is uh, is always going to be a you know, a gray area. And as you all have been saying, the fact that we're dealing with content, we're dealing with data or code with code as data, um, you know, is going to make this continuously a, a, a problem. I think what we're, we're faced with and, and really have to recognize that even from the earliest days of publishing, no, I won't say the, the earliest, but certainly by the time we were in the 19th century, there were government regulations regarding the, the rights that um, an author sold to, for example, a publisher. The rights that the publisher has in giving you and selling you an instance of the book but the rights that that publisher retains or that owner of the copyright retains, even though you have the physical book, That's right. you're right that they don't have a lot of capability to police your use of it and what you might do with it, unless it becomes so obvious that you've, you know, replicated the, you've replicated the book and you're, you're selling copies on the street corner and not paying uh, the publisher or the owner, but it's, um, you know, we're, we've been dealing with this for a good deal longer than, mm -hmm. um, than just, you know, the last 30, 40 years. So 
I think it's important to recognize that it it doesn't doesn't make it easier, but it I think we do have to recognize it. But but there is law both case and um, and enacted laws as to yes. how to enforce copyright and what mm-hmm. the rights of uh, people yes. in possession of a copyrighted material are allowed to do with it. Mm-hmm. And that's being abrogated in the digital world and and changed right now. Tell me, tell me how it's being abrogated when I, and I'm not it's not that I disagree with you, hmm. but uh, I wanted to make sure I understood what is being abrogated. So because ownership of ownership of information, ownership of data, ownership of a conveyance of data is, are are three different things. Uh, well, and you recall recall also that the there rights, were the rights there were, of the owner of a copyrighted work are that you own it and you're allowed to do with it as you want as long as you don't republish and plus a few other things and the fact that uh, libraries a few are other things include loan it out individually uh as often as as uh uh they want and suddenly they can only loan it out 10 times and then must pay the publisher again or the fact that i mean Internet Archive is fighting this right now. They literally mm-hmm. have warehouses filled with books and they have electronic copies and they only loan electronic copies out to the number of copies of hard book, hard copy books they have. Oh, and they are being sued by publishers for doing that, even though they have the hard copy book that says I can loan this to anyone I want. Who so, is abrogating? Who's abrogating? The publishers. Are, the publishing who is, who is, well, are they The publishing association the, is trying to limit Internet Archive's oh. use of their copies of yeah, copyrighted I, materials. I, 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 I understood. So, but your point, your point, I think, is that, you know, there are, there is regulation, there, there are laws. And, and they're being you know, right they're, now, yes. It, and the right place to, in my mind, the right place to to fight these issues is exactly there, and that's in courts and in in the in the, the legal structures, and yes. it's going to be it's going to be messy. And <laughs> you, you, one of the things that you one but, of the things that you may have excuse me, Rocky, just for a second. Yep. Um, one of the things that Mark touched on was you know watching the movie, for example, or, and you have to remember that um, the rights and the revenues that come from a performed work, whether it's a movie or a piece of music, there are very different laws and different licenses relating to owning and playing it for yourself or, you know, basically a performance of a of a song or of a movie there are you know you have bmi and ascap for music as well as the um the the various approaches to what it what amounts to ownership of the intellectual property so 
we're we're inheriting a very messy uh, legal set of legal structures, but there are some precedents. And I think when we make distinctions between, um, when we're able to make good distinctions between um, ownership, stewardship, various kinds of rights to use, and are clearer about that in the licensing, we'll all live a great deal easier. But until that time, you can be absolutely sure, Rocky, that <laughs> the publishers and the guys with with the clout and with the checkbooks are going to be, you know, on our necks. And you said exactly <laughs> what I was heading towards is that the people with the money and copyright laws were actually put in place to to protect people without the money. Yeah, uh, and copyright copyright use, laws use is, <laughs> is for yeah. the people without money. And, and, and by the way, for, copyright copyright laws have you know been strange how the goalposts keep moving. You know, Mickey Mouse, Disney and Mickey Mouse and, and their rights to their copyright have strangely expanded beyond, you know, the original 40 years to 50 years to 60 years. Hmm, wonder why that is. All right. I'm adding a topic for September 23rd. We have two hands raised, and but we're out of time. Um, I, I, I'm happy to keep the keep the floor open for a minute. So. Joanne, you and Larry can get your final points. Larry, if, if you put your hand down, so maybe it's just Joanne. Okay. Um, my final point is this. We are the worst abusers of our own rights as right as, as the owners of our thoughts because we use social media. Every time we tweet, every time we post, everything we write – we have no control over who takes not the data, which is owned by the platform legally, but rather the intellectual capital and the intellectual property that's the basis of that content. We are giving it away. And we have no control over how it gets used, who plagiarizes it, who takes it, spins it, and reuses it and abuses it. So... What does that mean for right to repair? Why is there no edit key in Twitter? It's a good question. Same thing, you know, with all of this stuff. So we are in a way self-defeating the notion of right to repair because that too would be right to repair. And we can't enforce intellectual property law. Well, an edit is a repair. That is a powerful, powerful point. And by the way, when we and when we signed the license to use Twitter at no fee, um, you know, that was what was that was given up. That was what we signed when we did it. So, yeah, you're 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 dead on, but it's part of the mess. Absolutely part of the mess. Well, I'd like an edit button, please because I end up making a lot of typos because of my dyslexia. Oh. And it's ridiculous to jump through the hoops to do that. So I would like the right to repair. <laughs> yeah, and <clears throat> sorry, the hand grenade I was gonna throw was um, <laughs> around um, copyright software and the fact that 
really all of these right to repair devices, we're talking about software and hardware and copyright doesn't really fit hardware. It doesn't uh, at all. And, and we have these blended devices. And so we, we need to be, we need a more nuanced approach than just saying we're going to use copyright to enforce these things. Um, Amen. So that's, yeah, I, you, you were, you went sort of where I was going and I, I added a topic for September 23rd to go back to this. Cause I think it's worth more discussion in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm now thinking about my, the, the tractors as binders for books and the book is the, the, you know, the autumn, the, the intelligence that makes the tractor go and the tractor is just the book, physical book with somebody else's IP in it. So interesting thinking on all this stuff. And I, I appreciate where we took this because I think this is a, a much deeper level than I've, I've seen in other RT, RTR conversations. So as always, I get a lot out of these conversations, everybody. Good stuff. I don't know. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Until next time. Bye. Thanks. Bye. As always, a remarkable conversation. Uh, We are going to go back to this topic, and we want to hear your input on this. Uh, As much as anything else, right to repair is going to be driven by consumer demands. You know, will the, the users of these technologies demand that they have the right to modify, repair, componentize, and modularize? Or are the brands going to be too worried about their brand identity to allow that to happen? Uh, we'll be going into that in the next session about this um, in September. So please join us at the Cloud 2030. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.